Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Habakkuk. Everyone pronounces it a little bit different, but anyway, that's the way I say it. I was told by one of my professors one time in the seminary that uh, to pronounce a proper name anyway was proper. Amen. <laughs> so, I don't know we'll go with that because some of the names in the Bible are a little difficult. But anyway, we'll turn to the second chapter, if you will. Now, we really taught, in a sense, down to verse 4, but I would like to go back to verse 1. Many of you know how I teach in Sunday school and just teaching the Bible. We just teach chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And where we leave off, we will get to pick that up there. But uh, this book of Habakkuk is very important. The first portion of it here, we have uh, Habakkuk's complaint to God and God answering him and telling him what to do and wait for really all that he would answer. And after finishing his complaint in verse 1, he resolves to watch and to observe and wait and see what God will do. And he has to sit and wait in patience. Sometimes patience is a hard lesson for you and I to learn. But on the other hand, the Bible says tribulation worketh patience, doesn't it? So let's begin with verse 1 again. I've covered down to verse 4, but I'd like to, for the sake of those that uh, maybe missed it, repeat a very important lesson in verse 4, and also elaborate on verse 3 that I did not when we taught it before. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower, and will watch to see what he will say unto me, and what I shall answer when I am reproved. So after he had finished his complaint, that God would take a wicked nation, the Chaldeans, and punish a less wicked nation, he considered... uh, those that were more righteous of Israel's people, God's people, that he would take the Chaldeans and punish them, kind of threw him off. He didn't know what to think about that. But uh, after he'd made this complaint, he said, I'm going to wait and see what God will do about this situation. Remember, God's always in control and he does the right thing. And sometimes he takes a wicked nation, he did many times in the Old Testament, to uh, chasten, chastise his own people. And I'm wondering if uh, through all of the things that are going on today that uh, we may receive our chastening hand from God as a nation because we've turned away from God a great deal in the whole country. We know there's a lot of faithful, good Christian people, and yet there's a lot of people that uh, that have departed from the Lord, as we uh, mentioned this morning, drift, drifted away from uh, the Lord. So... It's as from a high tower for further revelation from God that he waits. He said, I'll wait. I'll watch and I'll wait. And then the Lord answers him, beginning in verse 2, And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon the tables that he may run that readeth it. We know that the Lord's response to Habakkuk's lament was to make a message that would be simple and clear and plain, that it might be read by... Uh, coming uh, messengers, barriers. You know, they used to have the runners that would come and bring the good news. Remember, we quoted in Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those that bring good tidings. And then Paul uses that in the book of Romans. I believe it's the 10th chapter when he speaks about the preacher bringing good tidings uh, of good things. And that, of course, is applied to the gospel in Romans 10. And so here... The vision and the message is to be very plain. And uh, 
Then he tells us in uh, verse 3 that the vision is for yet an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Now look at this third verse. It's very important. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Now if you turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37, you'll find that uh, this vision that's for the appointed time, Paul uh, speaks of it in Hebrews chapter... I said 11, didn't I? It's Hebrews chapter... 10 and verse 37. Hebrews 10 verse 37. I got the wrong word down, but that's what it is. And when Paul uh, used this in Hebrews 10 verse 37, he says, For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. He doesn't say it, but he. The it of Habakkuk is turned to a he here. And this vision that's for an appointed time is when it's pointing to the coming of Christ. And then he goes on to continue with Habakkuk. The next verse, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them that who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. So, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37 through 39, both of these verses, both verse 3 and verse 4 when we get to it, Turn back to Habakkuk now, chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. And we'll see that verse 4 is also quoted in that same passage of Scripture. Now, let's read verse 3 again. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. It was yet a time for those of old historically. But at the end it shall speak and not lie. And it says, though it tarry, this vision shall tarry. It says, wait for it, because it it will surely come, and it will not tarry. And it's applied to coming of the Lord, that He will come. He will not tarry. Now, verse 4, I want you to look at this one. Behold, His soul which is lifted up is not right in Him. Now, notice what it says. But the just shall live by His faith. Now, this word, the just shall live by His faith. And we gave you this last in our last lesson, but I want to recap it for those that were not here. The just shall live by faith was the theme of Martin Luther. During the Reformation, he was crawling up on the stairs on his knees as a Catholic and doing penance and trying to make peace with God through all that you could do physically and and in various other ways. And he got to thinking, well, if the just shall live by faith, why are my knees so sore crawling up these stairs? Why do I have to live like I'm doing to try to earn my salvation? If the just shall live by faith. And that was his theme for coming out of uh, Catholicism during the Reformation. And uh, we find that Paul used it three times in the New Testament. It'd be well if you'd jot these down to have them because uh, they are progressive in the thought. Now then, Romans 1.17. We gave you this in our last lesson. Romans 1.17. Just go ahead and jot all three down while you're at it. And Galatians 3.11 and Hebrews 10:38 we just read Hebrews 10:38 but Romans 1:17 Galatians 3:11 and Hebrews 10:38 now let's turn to these three if you will briefly now then we said that in our last lesson that in each one of these there's an emphasis upon a, a different word now look look at this the just that's one word shall live that's another word by faith is another word. 
So you have just and live and faith. The just shall live by faith. Now then, we have uh, actually all three of these uh, passages of Scripture could emphasize either one, any one of these words. But some have divided it up and made it uh, a little bit different to show that in Romans 1.17, and if you have it that, it says, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So here it's showing how a man is justified by believing the gospel, and God's righteousness is revealed, and the emphasis here is upon a man that is just. How can man be just before God? By faith in Jesus Christ. And so it says, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, Romans 1.17, The just shall live by faith. Now then, when you turn to Galatians, now here we have a difference of opinion. Some have put the emphasis on the word in Galatians 3.11, on faith instead of live, but uh, I'm not sure that that would be the case. And yet Romans 10, I mean, uh, not Romans, but Hebrews 10 verse uh, 38, uh, I believe it's progressive in that direction, so we'll just take it this way. Galatians 3.11, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Now, I, I believe that the word live is really the word that's emphasized mostly here, because it's talking about... Uh, in the next verse, the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live, live in them. So we see in uh, Galatians 3 verse 11, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. You don't live by the works of the law, you live by faith. And I believe that's what's emphasized in this second passage of Scripture. Now if you flip on over to Hebrews, Chapter 10 again, and we read it earlier. And verse uh, 38 it says, Now the just shall live by faith. If any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back into perdition, but to them that believe, which is the equivalent of faith, isn't it? To the saving of the soul. So if you have Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38 and 39 coupled together, you'll see that the emphasis is most likely on faith here. Uh, but regardless, you could read each and every one of these passages of Scripture and put the emphasis upon each one of these three words. The just shall live by faith. And whether or not you follow the order I've given you, it's still true that you find Paul quoting them in the New Testament under these three conditions. Now, as we pick this up, I want you to look back in Habakkuk. Hold your place where we're studying. I, I try to remind you of that, but if I don't, always go back there where we're studying. And hold your place right there because eventually we'll try to come back to it if, if we're able to do that. So we've read the first four verses. Now verses 5 through 20, we have a five-fold woe upon the Chaldeans. I'll let you mark them first, and then we'll come back and talk, talk about them. Notice in the middle of verse 6, and you can just put number 1 here. Middle of verse 6, you said, Woe unto him. 
that increaseth that which is not his. You see that in verse 6. Drop down to verse 9 and make that number 2. And it's woe to, the, to him that coveteth an evil covetousness to his house. That's The second one is in verse 9. Now then drop down to verse 12. You have the third one. Woe to him that buildeth the town with blood. That's number 3. Drop down to verse 15. Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink. And uh, we'll discuss these as we come to them. That's number 4. And then put number 5 by verse 19. Woe unto him that saith to the wood. This is their woe concerning idolatry. That's number 5. So from verses 5 through 20, you have these, this fivefold woe upon the Chaldeans. Fivefold woe. No wonder uh, Habakkuk was anxious to hear what God would do to this wicked nation that was using this wicked nation, the Chaldeans, to chasten his own people. If you look back, glance back with me briefly to verse 13 of the first chapter. Just glance back to verse 13. And Habakkuk says, Thou art of pure eyes unto behold evil. He could see the evil in the Chaldeans. And cast not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously? He's wondering why God doesn't do something about the Chaldeans. And he says this, And holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he. The wicked Chaldeans were devouring uh, those that were more righteous than he. And that was uh, Habakkuk's complaint. So now God is reminding Habakkuk by these woes upon the Chaldeans in verses 5-20 through of the second chapter how that their judgment would come. A fivefold woe upon these Chaldeans. So, uh, you know, God has plenty of time to turn things around. He doesn't have to do it immediately. And when old Habakkuk was worrying about it, he said, I'll, I'll just have to wait and see what God's going to do. And sometimes that, that's what we have to do, is just wait and see. We don't know how things will turn out in this world, but we know one thing, that God is in complete control of it. Whatever happens over there in, in, in the... Uh, countries today where all the conflict is going on. We know that we have to do what we have to do. I'm not going to say for or against this or that or the other, and I'm not going to play politics, but I believe that our uh, leaders know more than we know. If they were to reveal everything that they know about Iraq, well, we, we would, that let out all the secrets and there wouldn't be any uh, element of surprise or anything like that to, when, when you have to go and Confl- uh, confront them, but be that as it may, God still is in control. And He can make all things... You know, Romans uh, 8.28 says, For we know, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. So God can work things out. Notice there's two to thems in that passage. To them that love God, and to them who are the called according to His purpose. So if you apply, first of all, to love God and to them that are called according to His purpose, then all things work together for good. Now then, back to this. We could go chase that rabbit and probably never catch him. But anyway, let's get back to uh, Habakkuk chapter uh, 2, if you will. And let's look at this again now. Uh, This fivefold woe, beginning with verse 5, and even though we pointed out where the woe is found, 
We want to read all the context before and after it. It says in verse 5, Yea, also because he transgresseth by wine, he is a proud man, neither keepeth at home, who enlargeth his desire as hell, and is as death. And when he speaks of he, he's talking about the Chaldean in general. And he says, uh, And cannot be satisfied, but gathereth, uh, gathereth unto him all nations, and heapeth up unto him all the people. He's a conqueror. He wants everything under his control. Shall not all these take up a parable against him and a taunting proverb against him and say, Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his. They were taken over. Here's the woe. To him that increaseth that which is not his. He's a thief. He takes over. Doesn't belong to him. And so the first woe is pronounced in this direction. And it says, how long? There's a question here. Habakkuk saying, how long? He's asking that. And to him that uh, ladeth himself with thick clay, shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite thee and awake that shall vex thee and thou shalt be for booties unto them? Now, the reason for this is stated in verse 8. Because thou hast spoiled many nations, and the remnant of the people shall spoil thee. Because of men's blood, and for the violence of the land, of the city, and of all that dwell therein. You know, these things could be actually applied to conditions today, if we think about it just a little bit. They could be applied to what's going on. And from time to time, when these circumstances uh, have existed... You could take these scriptures and say, here's what God is going to do because here's what you've done. So, you see the woe to those that increase, that which is not His. And then it says, because thou spoil many nations, all the remnant of the people shall spoil thee. That's verse 8. Because of men's blood and for the violence of the land, of the city, and of all that dwell therein. So, this first woe is... Uh, initiated in that respect. Now I want you to notice the second one in verse beginning with verse 9. Notice, verse 9 says, Woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness to his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may uh, be delivered from the power of evil. Thou hast consulted shame to thy house by cutting off many people and hast sinned against thy soul. For the stone shall cry out of the wall, and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. Notice this is the proverb he speaks of. Woe to him, verse 9, that coveteth an evil covetousness. Covetousness. An abominable pride. Set his nest on high. Look at that statement in verse 9. That's pride, isn't it? Self-security. Thinking that they can avert the power of evil. Look at that. It says that, may, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. He sets his nest on high as if he's self-secure. And he thinks that he will never face the uh, evil day that he'll be delivered from the power of evil because of his uh, self-secured attitude. None of us are self-sufficient. One time I remember in a fellowship meeting in uh, Fort Worth in our seminary, we had uh, Dr. <clears throat> J. Harold Smith. Some of you have heard him on the radio years ago. 
and he pastored the First Baptist Church of, uh, let's see, in uh, Arkansas. What was the name of the town? You remember, Brother Nick? Anyway, Fort Smith, Arkansas. And I'll revive that thought. You see, there is such thing as a resurrection in there. And uh, anyway, uh, he had pastored there for years and he was preaching and they said, and he was a, a Southern Baptist. And that time they were more fundamental than they are nowadays. But anyway, he was Southern Baptist and we're not going to get into that and all the denominational differences and divisions that have come through the years. But to make a long story short, he was preaching in our seminary, still Southern Baptist, when he was preaching there in an independent uh, fellowship meeting. And we welcomed him because you couldn't tell the difference in the way he preached. But the thing about it is, he says, uh, Brother Smith says, uh, Dr. Smith says, there have been several of the brethren asked what kind of Baptist you are. says, you an independent Baptist? No, he said, I'll tell you what I am. I'm a dependent Baptist. All of us are dependent and we're dependent upon one another. So let's never get this, the idea that we're like this and set our nest on high that we can do without everyone else in the world. And that, we, that He may be delivered from the power of evil, that there never will be a chastening hand come upon us. But that's what these Chaldeans thought because they had been used, God had permitted the wickedness or this wicked nation and people to be used in chastening. As a chastening rod. He did that all through the Old Testament. Remember in the book of Judges? How that there would be oppressors of, of, of Israel. And they'd, they'd oppress them. And things would happen. And things would happen. And then they'd, they would get on their knees. They'd cry unto God. And God would send them a deliverer. A savior. Gideon. Barak. All of the ones. If you go back and study the book of Judges. You'll find Samson. All of the different ones. Some of them were, were not of the best of character. Gideon was a pretty good fellow, but Samson, you know, well, we won't talk about him. But the thing about it is, I had Brother Curtis sitting on the front pew one Sunday, and we was talking about Samson some way or another. We brought it out and says, you know, he never did learn, did he? He said, he just fell into one trap after the other. And it looks like, he said, it looks like after that first downfall, he would have come to his senses. But some people are slow to learn and never. But back to what we're studying here, this business of being so self-secure that think that they can avert the power of evil, they were not going to do that. And that's true in the sense of wicked nations or even good nations when they get so haughty and lifted up with pride. The Bible says pride goeth before destruction or what? And a haunted spirit before the fall. And I could give you things that, that I have down about pride, but anyway, it fits... These people. And it goes on to show, it says in verse uh, 11, For the stone shall cry out of the wall, and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. In other words, the, the answer is going to come from the most unlikely place. If you go in the Bible, you could preach on strange preachers. You know the donkey that spoke to, to Balaam? I mean, he told him, didn't he, what God was doing. And then the rooster that crowed when Peter had denied the Lord. as a strange preacher, wasn't it? We might say that even this, the beam, look. The stone shall cry out of the wall and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. Witness against it, the margin reference says. So we find that covetousness here 
and abominable pride, self-secure thinking that they can avert judgment is what was in view in this second woe. Remember the first woe was in verse 6. Taking what didn't belong to you. Increasing that which is not his. Here it's covetousness. The Bible says in the New Testament that what? Covetousness is idolatry. That's what Paul says about it. Now then look at verse 12. This is number three of these woes. You have them marked, I hope, in your Bible. Number one is in verse 6. Number two is in verse 9. Number three is in verse 12. Number four in verse 15. And number five in verse 19. So when we progress along, keep them in mind. In verse 12 it says, Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood. Look at that. And establish a city by iniquity. A godless civilization is what we find here. And we're going to find in this context, it's a pointed end. We're going to see their cruel oppression that brought about their appointed end. So woe to him that buildeth a town with blood and establishes a city by iniquity. Behold, it is not of the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor in the very fire and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity. It's not of the Lord of hosts. Then he says in verse 14, For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the, of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There will be a time that all this oppression will be ended. And the godless civilization, whether it be the civilization of old that was directly in front of Habakkuk in his cry, or in the future, the godless civilizations will be destroyed. And then it says that the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And Isaiah also speaks of this. We have places in the Bible that speak of the, the earth being filled with the, the knowledge of the Lord. And here it says the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That will be the time that we're all looking for. There's one of the prophets, and we'll get into it when we study it, that says the desire of nations has come. I believe it's in Haggai when we get there. Zephaniah's next, and then Haggai will be the next one. The desire of the nations. What is the desire of the nations? Well, that's when peace, when Jesus comes, and there will be peace that will rule upon this earth. There's not any now. In fact, it's getting worse all the time. Conflicts are rising up on every side of us. See, you don't know where it's coming from. I mean, there's wickedness all over this world. And it doesn't make any difference what we do. We try to squash it some as we go along and expel it and control it, whatever. But we see our weaknesses, don't we? And we see our inability to deal with anything that's, uh, that is beyond our strength to do. doesn't mean we need to sit by and do nothing when evil approaches one has said in time past that the way to let evil triumph is for good men to do nothing. And if you want, to, if you got a problem out here in the community, and you just and you just let evil go on and never confront it, never face it, even on a small scale, well, it, it'll eventually uh, take over, won't it? If you do nothing about it, so you have to face problems. But we have to face them in God's guidance and counsel and strength. And just help us to do that in our nation in this day and hour. So, 
We're talking about here in verse 12 through 14. And now let's pick up with verse 15. The fourth one of these woes. It says, Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that putteth thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken also, that thou mayst look on their nakedness. Thou art filled with shame for glory. Drink thou also, and let thy foreskin be uncovered. The cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned unto thee, and shameful spewing shall... Look here. Shameful spewing shall be... uh, on thy glory. For the violence of Lebanon shall cover thee in the spoil of the beast which made them afraid because of men's blood for the violence of that land and of the city and of all that dwell therein. Let's stop right there a minute. What's happening here? Drunkenness here is a picture of the utter procrastination of the nation which the Chaldeans had conquered. And I said, I said procrastination, prostration. They brought them down. And it says, woe unto him. If you want to apply this, first of all, in the literal sense of the word, it may be uh, permissible to do that. But uh, on the other hand, it's basically talking about the nation appearing to be as such. But it says, woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that puttest thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken also. Did you know it's just as wrong for you to get someone drunk on an individual basis, as it is for them to drink it and become a drunkard. That's why that we do not believe that those that are in the liquor business are irresponsible, as they perceive themselves to be. You know, we've got all this, these ads on television. The bartender, make sure you get someone that's not drunk to drive you home, and he's standing there serving them. Right and left, you know. What about his responsibility? You say, well, that's the business he's in. He's in the wrong business, brother. That's all that's wrong. He's in the wrong business. There used to be a day it was considered that. Nowadays, everything is just overlooked. That's why when I promised as a young boy never to buy, sell, or drink any intoxicating liquor or beverage. Never to sell, buy, or drink. So, you know, it all enters the picture. The seller's guilty, the buyer's guilty, and the drinker's guilty before God. And I, I'm not, you've heard me mention it a time or two before in my preaching, but I signed that pledge when I was a little boy in my mother's Bible, probably four years old or five years old. And to this day, and I've been around a little bit. In the Navy at 17, with the drunk sailors on every side, had to put them on their bunks, about three stacks high, when they'd come in. And I was exposed to it all here in Rio Dosa. And you know in a lifetime how many times a person is exposed to temptations. But it never was a temptation to me. Never in my life. And to this very day, I've never bought or sold or even tasted of any intoxicating beverages, beer, or wine, or any liquor of any kind, any mixed drinks. And I said, by, with God's help, the pledge was this, with God's help, I promise never. But with God's help. But we must promise with God's help if we're going to do anything and dedicate ourselves to anything that is good and right, we have to say God's help. Because we can't do it on our own. 
But you know, there was never a desire in my whole system, in my whole life, to even want to to try it out. And when I'd be with guys that were drinking it right and left, you know why? God took that completely away from me. I had absolutely no desire, no inclination, no temptation to do it. But you know we have to dedicate ourselves to doing that which is right. And it doesn't mean that I'm not claiming perfection or anything in that nature. I'm just mentioning it as a testimony. If it does you any good, fine. If it doesn't, we'll we just go from there. But I want you to notice, Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that putteth thy bottle to him. Now this nation was considered here. This drunkenness is a picture of the uh, prostration of that nation which the Chaldeans had conquered and brought upon them. They had caused it. And it's, it goes on down to say in verse 17, For the violence of Lebanon shall cover thee, and the spoil of the beast which made them afraid because of men's blood, and for the violence of the land, and of the city, and of all that dwell therein. Look at the violence on every hand. As a result of what? These wicked Chaldeans that had conquered at this particular time. Now let's look at verses 18 through 20. Now verse 19 will be where we'll find the word woe, but verse 18 is strictly and definitely connected with it because it's speaking of idolatry. And it says, beginning with verse 18, What profit the graven image that the maker thereof hath graven it? A graven image? What profit is it? I mean, people make all kinds of images. But is there any profit in any of them? Absolutely not. We'll see what it is. That the maker thereof hath graven it. The molten image and a teacher of lies. They teach that they have some power. It's a lie to think that any image or idol has any power. In fact, God says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. And He says, Thou shalt have no other gods before Me. And any man that teaches otherwise is a teacher of lies. That the maker of his work trusteth therein. He trusts in these things. To make dumb idols. What profit is this graven image? And the last part is a question. To make dumb idols. There's not any profit in it. Now then, verse 19 speaks of the woe concerning this same subject of idolatry. It says, Warn to him that saith to the wood, Awake. Can you imagine saying to a wood? Be like you go down here. You know all these carved bears they have? I mean, they're all over the town, aren't they? Go down there to one of those wooden bears and say, Look, awake. Wake up. You're just sitting there as a log, a stump. And uh, trying to get that thing to wake up. Well, there's no one in the world. You see, warn to him that saith to the wood, Awake! To the dumb stone, arise! This big old rock, and you carved an image out of it, or made some kind of a figure on it to make it an idol. And say to that rock, You know what? Uh, rise! Get up! Now, we know that's foolish, don't we? It's just as foolish for people to think such way and to attribute such powers to these dumb idols. It shall arise. It shall teach. Look at verse 90. Woe to him that saith to the wood, Away. To the dumb stone, Arise. It shall teach. You see this stone rising up? Come up, stand behind the pulpit, start teaching him? I don't think so. You see one of them carved and hung on the wall? Or a wood image? An idol? 
They're not going to do you any good. You say, well, preacher, we don't make any graven images or idols. But the Bible tells us that uh, there's other things that are idols. In fact, we mentioned a little bit ago about covetousness when we were dealing with that in verse 9, that Paul says covetousness is idolatry. People can set up all kinds of idols without actually covering, uh, carving one out of wood or out of stone. And we don't idolize. We thank God for the blessings He gives us, but we don't idolize anything. Some people idolize anything that they possess and everything that they possess. It can be a home, it can be a new automobile, even in my case, an old one. But whatever, you know, you can idolize anything, but don't make any idols in your life. So their idolatry is what's condemned here. And then the last part of the verse, look, Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver. You can even dress it up quite a bit. Put gold and silver on it. Cover it. And there is no breath at all in the midst of it. No breath. I have that circled. doesn't hurt to write in your Bible. Get a Bible you can write in and circle things and, and mark things and number. Look here. Number things and color things and put an arrow down here and connect this one with that one and go on down and, and study it. And that's what it's for us to study. It's God's Word. You say, well, I wouldn't... You know, there's some people who will not make a mark in their Bible. Well, the Bible says, study to show thyself approved unto God. What do you study? His Word. And then learn what the connections of one place to the other are all about. But anyway, let's go on with this. It says, there is no breath at all in the midst of it. Now then, in contrast to that, look in verse 20. We'll close with verse 20. But the Lord... Now, the Lord is in His holy temple. He's not an idol. The Lord, Jehovah, God, is in His holy temple. And it says, Let all the earth keep silence before Him. If you're going to reverence anything, reverence the Lord who is in His holy temple. And when we come to the the point that we point point out uh, God's throne and... It's a holy throne, and it's a throne of judgment. And by the way, we get into the thought of judgment in this next chapter, and we'll deal with a lot of things here that are very important in the third chapter. We'll take it in our next lesson. But we thank you tonight for your patience and kind attention to everything, and pray that we can get... Wednesday night, we'll try to take up right here where we left off.